This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 587. And the quote of the day is, a goal is not always meant to be reached. It often serves simply as something to aim at. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Rafini here, episode 587. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, I mentioned I'm trying to do something for the 600th episode. And if you have any ideas, shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com. Some people have already sent me some some great suggestions. I'm not exactly sure what I want to do. I'm thinking about maybe a Zoom hang or something like that. So if you're interested, let me know. Shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com. Now, let's get into this conversation. This is with the amazing John Riley, and this is actually from an episode that I did back in 2015. Why am I releasing it now? Well, I had a conversation the other day with a friend of mine. We were talking about focusing on the things that you can control and not worrying about the things that you can't. And I get a lot of emails about what people are working on. And especially last week or two weeks ago in the in the wrap-up email that I send out, I asked people, I said, hey, what are you working on? And a lot of it was things in the practice room. It was, you know, uh, particular styles that they're trying to learn or particular things that they've, they've struggled with for a long time. And it got me even thinking more about, one, focusing on the things that you can control, but then two, what should you be working on? And John Riley talks a lot in this conversation about the four characteristics of a great drummer. And I think it's really timely now because I feel like we're not playing a lot of gigs, but we definitely have time to be shedding and practicing and honing these these skills. And this conversation particularly stuck out in my mind when I was talking to my buddy about focusing on the things you can control. So I figured I would re-release this and get it to the top because again it was it was released a long time ago almost 5 years ago and the content is still relevant the all the information in there so check this out the four characteristics of a great drummer with the one and only John Riley Hey John thanks so much for doing this I appreciate it Oh my pleasure Nick thank you Absolutely. It's great to it's great to have you on the show and we're going to really dive into your storied career and I I always like to get a little bit of backstory on the drummers that I have on the show and there's a lot of information about you online. So, but just just give the listeners a quick a quick overview of uh, of sort of of where you come from, who you are and what you do. Well, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh I saw the Beatles on television. That inspired me to uh, to think about music, actually not really think about music, think about having fun and excitement, because that's what they were look, look like they were into. And I was a kid, and uh, of course, that's what I wanted to do, have more fun. Music was part of it, and as I listened more, I got more, more and more captivated by it. And so it started with the Beatles. Then I had a... a I had a drum teacher named Tom Sokola, and uh, I had just a snare drum, and I'm, I write with my left hand, but, uh, and I'd been playing this snare drum, and I went for my first lesson with Tom Sokola, and he said, yeah, that, that, 
that grip is okay, but if you're ever going to get a drum set, you should play right-handed. <laughs> so in my first lesson, he switched me from this kind of funny left-handed traditional grip that my father showed me into a more proper uh, right-handed traditional grip with the left hand playing traditional. Right. Sorry, that's a little confusing. <laughs> no, I get uh, what you were saying. Though. You were you were just your grip was completely reversed at, in the beginning, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, but I only had a snare drum and I hadn't taken any lessons, and I would uh, kind of mess around on this snare drum while listening to the radio. Right. And uh, and I guess I did it a lot, and my father thought, well, if he's going to do it that much, we better get him some lessons. <laughs> so that's that's kind of how it started. And how old were you? Were you how old were you when you started? Excuse me. I guess eight or nine. Okay. It's really weird because there's a lot a lot of times when I interview people that's around when they started, usually around nine years old. So which is it's just interesting. I always like to know how old people were when they started. So you fall right into that into that category of you know, everybody seems to have started when they were nine. Which is I guess that's because school band programs were you know, handing out instruments to kids in fourth and fifth grade. And so you would pick what instrument you wanted to play. Right. Uh, it, I think in my case, it was just a coincidence that the Ed Sullivan show had the Beatles on at about the same time mm-hmm. my school was passing out instruments. So now when you were, when you had mentioned that when you first started really getting into drumming, it was the Beatles that got you that really spark this excitement in music and and to have fun. So when did the transition come into jazz playing? Um, I had a, a teacher, a woman teacher must've been uh, in sixth grade who had a son that was a drummer and he was killed in the very early days of the Vietnam war when nobody knew what was going on. There was even a war and she had a bunch of his gear that she gave to me and uh, a fellow drummer in the class and uh, two records I got from her. And one was a, a Max Roach record called Conversation, which I didn't really understand at all. <laughs> and the other one was the soundtrack to the Gene Krupa story. Hmm. And, and that one I was kind of captivated by, and I would play along with the record in my basement every day. Uh, in addition to listening to, uh, you know, the Beatles and then Hendrix and Zeppelin and all of that stuff, I was playing with this, with this Krupa record. And there were a couple tunes on there that I absolutely couldn't hang with. The tempo was way too fast, but I, I just kept playing with it. And, uh, and I was drawn to, to the feeling of the music and, uh, the fact that he played some drum solos and um, it just seemed to be, I began to get the feeling that the jazz music uh, offered the opportunity for the drummer to make a little more contribution mm-hmm. to, to the overall uh, music. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, that's what, what started the transition. Hmm. It took quite a while for for jazz to be the primary thing I was practicing. Right. I you know the one thing that I have noticed is that people who are into rock or more I, I guess I would say more um, 
more, you know, like two and four kind of stuff have this weird thing with jazz where they're scared of it. They don't understand it. And, and, you know, they sort of uh, put it off in the corner and, and don't really mess around with it. So for those people out there that are listening, what's your advice for people if they want to get into jazz? Cause I strongly suggest that everyone learns styles, you know, all the styles, but especially jazz and the history and at least learn some of the standards and to, you know, to really see where rock and roll and, and all of this stuff comes from. Um, so how would you suggest that people sort of put their toe in the water, so to speak, to get started down that road? Well, I, you know, that's really common and, and that's a good observation on your part. I think that, uh, you know, unless you're Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington, almost no one experiences music in chronological order. Mm -hmm. We all start at some point and, uh, and either decide to look back to see how we how music arrived at where we're starting, or we just take it forward from there. Right. And and in my case, it's definitely been a journey to figure out why people play what they play now and how it was influenced by what happened before. Um. You know, when you when you listen to the early rock and roll records, there there were no rock drummers. Right all the drummers on those records were jazz drummers. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, since we're primarily an accompanying instrument, what those dr drummers did was, uh, modify the jazz beat and turn it into a shuffle and then eventually even out the shuffle. So if you can kind of see that, that, uh, that relationship and that link, then it might be a little easier to listen to some jazz stuff. Right. I would, I would suggest, um, maybe some of the hard, hard bop stuff like Art Blakey or, um, maybe the Ama Jamal trio, which was what isn't really hard bop, but, uh, with Vernel Fournier as really starting points where the music is kind of accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and more more groove oriented mm -hmm. um, as as a good place to to kind of find a connection right yeah cuz i think i agree with you that if you're just going to jump into something that's completely over your head and some some out there avant-garde jazz it's not going to help you uh it's not going to help the, help you with that transition very much no you need to find some kind of bridge something right. that links things together mhm mm mhm mm yeah, and especially you know the the Art Blakey stuff, uh, all you know the like the king of the shuffles, you know all that stuff that he had going, all those those hard shuffles that he had were just amazing, and I definitely agree with you. That's a good place to start. And the songs were um, not so complicated, a lot of them, and kind of trying to cross over in a way. So if they were trying to cross over to a wider audience. Uh, it might be possible for this wide audience to look back and find the crossover that Art Blakey was hoping for. Sure. So you're saying that he was making it more accessible with, with sort of adding a backbeat to it? Well, with, with playing shuffles, with playing riff-oriented tunes, with um, keeping the solos pretty short. Mm-hmm. Um, with having a very organized band, when you see videos of his band, especially 
the band with Freddie Hubbard and Wayne Shorter. Mm-hmm. Their stage presence is really polished. Uh, when Art Blakey introduces a song, it's as if he has a script that he's reading, and uh, he's really polished. And and when he when he walks from the drums to the microphone, um, it's very very uh, professional, but inviting looking. And then when he returns to the drums, he doesn't turn his back to the audience. He walks backwards so that he's facing the audience the whole time. So he's thinking about uh, keeping the audience engaged Mm -hmm. and not about necessarily about creating some kind of abstract new art. Right. Right. I never thought of it like that, and I've you know I've watched videos of it and and noticed that, but never really put all of that together. Yeah, there's a great video I think you can still find on YouTube. It's called Art Blakey and San Remo, maybe 1963, the concert in Italy, and the band is really on fire, but there's still uh, a kind of uh, there's a there's an entry point into the music. Um, for for novice jazz listeners, hmm. so that uh, that would be worth checking out. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely make sure I link to that uh, in the show notes too, so so everyone can check it out. Art Blakey and Sam Remo. <laughs> yeah, that's two words: S A N R E M O. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, just I'm, I'm making some notes as we're speaking because I I, I want to check it out too. So uh, so that's one video that I haven't seen. So. Now I we talked about you know the the bridge of of getting from one thing to the next and the to me I think the lineage of of the music is important to know you know where we were where we come from and and where we're going and I'm going to maybe put you on the spot here a little bit um can, but can you break down sort of the lineage of from from early jazz and how it transformed all the way up into say rock and roll and because I think that a lot of people have a hard time making the connection of how did ragtime become the Beatles? And it's sort of, a, I understand it's a loaded question, but if you could just give a, a brief history on that, that would be great for the listeners. Well, I'm not sure that I'm the authority on that subject. I'm a, I'm a student of it and a fan. But, you know, the drum set is a, a relatively young instrument. And, and when it was put together, there was no drum set language. Mm-hmm. So what what drummers used was basically the military language of rudiments mm-hmm. and cadences. And then they, we find ourselves in a situation where we have to accompany ragtime piano players. Right. And then Dixieland bands. And... Uh, and so what happened was drummers took this, this March language and modified it so that it was more sympathetic to what ragtime piano players were doing. Mm-hmm. And then they modified it again to, to work in an ensemble with a, with a tuba as the bass instrument and a banjo as a rhythm instrument and a trumpet clarinet and trombone as the front line. And that became... Dixieland. And so this this basic march rhythm that was played on the snare drum, this mm-hmm. da, 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 
eventually moved over and was emulated on the hi-hat. Ding, 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 and then moved over onto the ride cymbal. And, um, I mean, this is really a snapshot. Right, the uh, abridged version. Uh, uh, the very abridged version. But I heard, a, and then I heard an interview with, with uh, Kenny Clark. And he was being asked, how did he come up with this kind of bebop language of playing syncopated stuff on the snare drum and bass drum while playing time on the cymbal? And he said that that he loved the way Joe Jones played on the hi-hat. Hmm. But he could never get exactly that. And he said that when he watched Joe Jones play, uh, the way his right hand crossed over his left hand to play the hi-hat, he said it, it looked like his left hand was trapped and couldn't do very much. And then he made an analogy. He said, you know, I would never hire a one-armed piano player. Right. And he said, so I decided to move my right hand from the hi-hat onto the cymbal, and that freed up my left hand. Wow. And so, so that's part of the evolution. He couldn't do what one of his idols did, so he modified things a little bit. Hmm. So That's interesting. Yeah. So then... Max Roach and Art Blakey took this this innovation that Kenny Clark had and kind of turboized it. Now we have the beginning of uh, of what they call the jump bands, mm-hmm. which were R and B swing, hard swing R and B sort of early R and B pop bands, but they were playing swing, and out of that came Elvis and the beginning of rock and roll and Fats Domino and, and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so this, you know, the drums are a really powerful instrument, Yep. but, but if we overpower the band, we're not going to get hired. So we have to learn how to accompany. And that's what's been happening all along that we've been taking these these tools that we have and modifying them to support the innovation of the other instruments. It's rare that an innovation that a drummer makes forces the music forward. It's more often that something else is happening that requires us to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how March became swing became shuffle, became rock and roll. And then rock and roll became funk when bass players got a little more syncopated and sophisticated. Right. And what did drummers do there? Well, they started to play paradiddles between their hands mm-hmm. and, and line up the bass drum with those paradiddles to play more syncopated with the bass players. And it's a, it's a continual evolution Right. It's it's not quite like uh what is it Moore's law in computers that that every 2 years the capacity of a computer doubles. Right. It's not quite like that but <laughs> but drumming is evolving and uh and the requirements of being a competent player in this era I think are higher than they've ever been. Hmm. Now because you... of I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. 
Well, because of that, we need to be aware of all that history. And um, there have been highly accomplished players in each era, right. kind of pushing pushing uh, the requirements forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never thought about that. That you know, as generations go by, there's another style, and then another style, and another style, and it's like now you have to learn all of this stuff. You know, before you may have just had to learn how to play jazz. Now you have to learn how to play jazz and funk and rock and fusion and you know and all this other stuff. Well, you don't have to. Right. Uh, you can focus on on the music that tickles your ear the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally, the people that do that are the innovators in those in that style. Right. Um, but there's a lot of hybridization going on, and there's innovation through that mm-hmm. as well. So, what is your opinion of? the the current state of of drumming and and where it's going. Oh well, str- drummers are more uh, accomplished. I I think there are more highly accomplished drummers today than ever. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are there's more music being played on the drums. Right. But um, the the capacity and the artillery that uh, I would say that more people have a super high capacity um, these days than ever before. And that's probably because of of things like podcasts and YouTube and and all of that, because the whole history of the music is available to anyone at any time at their fingertips. Right. When I was a kid, uh, my drum lessons with Tom Sokola were $3 a half an hour. Wow. And um, I think drum teachers in general were were thrifty. Mm-hmm. And they would, you know, why are we still using the stink control book and the syncopation book uh, when there have been so many more advanced books uh, uh that have come out in the past 50 years. I think so many people use those books because the early drum teeth, because there was very little text in them and that didn't close the minds of drum teachers or drummers to what their potential was. Right. And so drum teachers being cheap would, instead of encouraging me to get another book, we would find a way to adapt the, the, exercises and syncopation or stick control to mm-hmm. solve a wide range of problems. Right. Right. And I, I, I still do that to this day though. I mean, I use, you know, I use page five and six of stick control for everything. You know, I wrote a book around it. <laughs> well, I use the first half, the first column of page five <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and one page of syncopation. Right. Right. <laughs> And if you're creative in a way, it makes things easier because you have you have a template and then you have treatments of it mm-hmm. rather than needing to remember a hundred different things, you have one sort of shape, and then you have these different ways that you look at it right I've always explained because I wrote a book around you know using stick control but applying all these different things, so you know the way I explain it is. It is a systematic way to work through 
you know, whatever thing you're working on. So it's all, the system is already laid out in front of you and then you just sort of apply your own, you know, your own creativity to it and, and use the R's and the L's to stand for whatever you want them to stand for. Yeah. That's what Joe Morello did when I was, when I was studying with him and that's the basis for his books, master studies and master studies too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even, when he was writing master studies too, he asked me to, to come over and we played through all the stuff and um, a couple of the exercises, I didn't quite understand where they were coming from. And when he told me what treatment he was putting on those R's and L's and the stick control, it became very obvious what, what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's so, talk about that. So the listeners aren't, aren't lost. So let's talk about like, give an idea of, of, of a treatment that we could put on, say, even, even let's say the first exercise, right, left, just back and forth, R, L, R, L, R, L, R, L. Uh, well, there's two that I really like. One is every time you see an R, you play right, left, left. Mm -hmm. And every time you see an L, you play right, right, left. Mm -hmm. And so if you're playing the first line, it ends up being Right, left, left, right, right, left, 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 right. So it turns out to be six stroke rolls. Right. Now, if you go down to the paradiddle, it's right, left, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, right, left, right, right, left. And these combinations actually create really nice accent patterns. Um, that you can play as triplets or even take the same phrases and play them in the 16th note rate. Hmm. Then it gets, then it gets pretty hairy, like right. mentally, <laughs> but, um, but that's, that's one treatment. Mm-hmm. And what was but, the other one you said that you like? Uh, every time you see a right, play a right paradiddle. Every time you see a left, play a left paradiddle. So the double stroke roll, right, right, left, left, is right, left, right, 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 left, right, right, left, right, left, 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 right, left, left, right, left, right, 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 left, right, right, left, right, left, 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 right, left, left. Right. And having these these three notes on each hand with the last one being accented really helped strengthen my hands. Yeah, that's. And when I was studying with Morella, we would play the. Well, we worked it up over over the course of some months, which I know I can't do this anymore. But to play the 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 th- first three pages of stick control at uh, quarter note equals two hundred. Yeah, it was super fast and Jeez. long. It is fast. So it was a real endurance. So it was like. Or maybe faster than that, um, like through the whole thing. Wow. And so that was a real um, endurance and concentration hmm. uh, exercise. It's it's such an amazing thing to to start to put these, you know, to put these treatments on it as, you know, we'll call them uh, for the for stick control. The one that you mentioned, the paradiddle one sort of reminds me of one that I do is, um, 
play, if you see an R play, um, the beginning half of a paradiddle, so just right, left, right, right, but accent the, the first note. And then if you see an L play left, left, right, left, and accent the right in that. So if you have, you know, an R and an L, it's yeah, and then flip them and then use natural sticking so that you'll have like, this is where it gets hairy. You have a right-handed R and a left-handed R and then a right-handed L and a left-handed L, you know, if you're using natural sticking. Mm-hmm. Once you learn it, it's okay. But at the beginning, it kind of you know throws your brain for a loop. Well, that that can be good. Yeah, yeah. You know, I always say if uh, if your practicing sounds good, you're not practicing. Right. I love. <laughs> so that. if it's easy to do, um, you're probably not growing that much through the process. Right. I agree. So what is your, what's your advice and, and approach to practicing? It's always a hot topic here on the podcast because the listeners are always want to know how, how can I, how can I practice better? What's, what's the best way to practice? And, you know, I don't think there's a, a surefire answer, but I always like to hear everyone's approach and opinions on practicing. Well, I think we practice skills and we try and apply that to music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I guess playing in time is the most important thing. And so then you have to ask yourself, why don't we play in time? Right. And I think there's two, two main reasons. One is that we have a coordination issue or we have a concentration issue. If you, if you playing something that you have control over and you're concentrating, it should be in time. Mm hmm. So I'm always looking for things that challenge my coordination and my concentration to, to get more command of the instrument. And then um, I like to play with recordings yeah, and see if I can access these new skills that, uh, that I'm cultivating, um, not really in the heat of battle, but closer to in the heat of battle. Uh, than if I'm only concentrating on playing a particular exercise. As soon as I have to account for a bass player and form, um, part of my brain power is committed to that. So it makes it harder to to play new ideas clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I talk about. I think there's there's a, a lot of people sound great in the practice room. Yeah. And, but then they can't access any of that stuff when they play with people. Right. I was going to say, I so, sound fantastic in the, in the practice room. Some days I do too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think there's a gulf between the stage and the practice room. Right. And you need to create a halfway house. Mm-hmm. And for me, the halfway house is playing with records playing with recordings. So let's say I'm working on a particular new phrase. First, I just work on the phrase and don't even think about four, four or four measure phrases or anything like that. I just try and get a flow on this, this idea that this new idea that occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Then I try and put it into a context of, of a pulse. Mm -hmm. And then I try and put it into a context of four measures. When I can do that comfortably, then I'll put on a recording and 
force myself to play that new phrase every chance I can with the recording. Right. Just just to see if I can do it while I have to acknowledge um, this other information that's coming in my ears. Mm-hmm. When I can do that, the next step is to put on another recording and see if something in that recording will trigger me to play the new phrase. Oh, that's and so then, so then once that happens, I'm much closer to being able to access it when I'm playing with people. Right. Now, usually, I'm, I'm not... Some people can practice things and immediately play it the next day on a gig uh, because their consciousness of what they're playing is, uh, is so strong. Right. I'm, I'm not really trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I can't I'm trying do that, to, so. <laughs> I'm trying to learn new material and I practice it more or less until I can't stand hearing myself play it anymore. Right. And then I know I have it. And then I just kind of put it to sleep. And um, a month or two or three months later, I'll be playing and something will happen. And this thing will arrive at the right moment for the music. Right. And I'll, I'll have to ask, oh, where did that, that related to that thing I was practicing in mm-hmm. the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to keep a little cassette player next to my drum set, a cassette recorder next to my drum set. And, and when I stumbled upon something I'd like, I liked, I'd record 30 seconds of it, but I wouldn't listen to the tape until I had 90 minutes of those little snippets. Wow. And it might take, you know, a couple of months to fill that tape. up. Sure. And then I'd listen, listen to the tape and there'd be things that I had absolutely no recollection of or didn't really know where one was. Right. But, but that <laughs> would that create a new <laughs> exploration of these ideas that, that captivated me, you know, two months earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, then I got a little more efficient and started to write down the ideas. And when I couldn't think of anything to practice, I'd open up one of these books where I had ideas written down and, and I just start playing those ideas and I'd find links between them that I hadn't considered before. And I have pages and pages of this stuff with the date marked when I wrote them down and, and arrows connecting phrases from different dates together. And, and, uh, that made my practicing a little more, um, focused. Sure. Yeah. I think that a lot of people walk into the practice room and they walk in they sit down and they say, okay, I'm here. Now what do I do? Well, what I do is I usually start out by playing 10 or 15 minutes of real easy stuff on a practice pad. And while I'm doing that, um, I'm not focusing on speed or anything like that. I'm just trying to, to get my blood circulating and to try and get my muscles to sort of align for, for drumming. And at the same time, I'm thinking about what I hope to accomplish when I sit at the drums. Mm-hmm. Because when I sit at the drums, I don't want to feel like I have to warm up. I want to start trying to play music right away. Right. And so that might, you know, that might be an approach 
for sure. those that walk into the room and don't quite know what to do. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say they don't know what to practice. And I say anything that <laughs> anything that you can't play, try that. <laughs> yeah. Or, t- or, you know, pick up any drum book and open it to any page and start playing it and then see how you m- can modify it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that approach. Now you would mention yeah. you would mention um in I saw something on YouTube that you were talking about the four things that drummers must have are technique, groove, creativity, and musicianship mm-hmm. to to really be a well rounded drummer. And I'd love to touch on those uh quickly just to talk about maybe ways to to develop those four skills. Technique, I think, you know, the easiest one, groove a little bit easier or, you know, a little bit harder, but creativity and musicianship, I think, is one that, that people have a hard time with. So if we could just touch on those, that would be, I think the, the listeners would get some great value out of that. Sure. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with the, the easy one. Let's start with technique. Well, I'm... I'm just trying to to let the sticks do as much of the work as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to trying to capitalize on rebound, and I find when I when I am doing that, I get a more beautiful sound. I get a more legato sound, mm-hmm. and I've been working on this for <laughs> quite a while. So I don't really have to think about it anymore. Right. What I do my awareness is is of the one second when I start to tighten up and my sound changes. And then I immediately, like touching a hot stove, I immediately move out of that, out of that zone. Right. Just quickly back off and relax a little bit. Yes. Relax uh, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I think Ed Sof has a great phrase. He doesn't think, he didn't, what did he say? He said, I think about degrees of looseness, not degrees of tightness. Right. (laughs) That's interesting. You want to have maximum looseness and still control. Yep. Yep. If you're too loose, then you lose control. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm thinking about in terms of the hands. In terms of the feet, I'm just thinking about integrating them and being able to to drop bass drum notes or hi hat notes anywhere inside a string of of hand notes. Hmm. Um, now, how do you typically practice that kind of stuff? Um, well, I might play quarter notes on the hi hat and think of a sixteenth note rate and. You can do it systematically, like playing um, two notes with a hand, two notes with the feet, mm-hmm. two notes with a hand, one note with, I'm sorry, two notes with the hand, two notes with the bass drum, two notes with the hand, one note with the bass drum, one and one, um, all against all against the quarter note in the hi-hat. Right. So it's going to be like if the tempo is one, two, three, four. And then randomize those. And then gradually increase the speed on that. Wow, that's cool. I've never done that before, but I'm doing that today. 
And then when, when that gets comfortable, maybe start to think about groups of five. So can be four notes with a hand. All against the quarter note. All against the quarter note, yeah. Or Tony Williams a lot of times would play three with the hand and two with the foot. So one, two, three, four. Da 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 boom da 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 boom boom da 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 boom boom ba ah two three four ba 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 boom boom ba 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 boom boom ba 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 boom boom ba ah and then you can make the phrase longer ba da da boom boom da 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 boom boom da 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 boom boom ba 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 ba on interesting or sevens or and then you want to get to the point where it can be totally random right and just have total control. Well, I would say access. <laughs> right. right. And then you can do it between the hands and the left foot. Then you can drop the quarter notes off the left foot and play it between hands and random bass drum and hi-hat notes. Or not random, but uh, mixed up. Right. This is all interesting stuff. I'm intrigued. I'm definitely trying. Well, that's to really helped me. Then you can do it at the triplet rate. Right. Yeah, I'm just think I'm sort of quiet right now because I'm hearing it in my head a little bit. So, yeah, I this is this is great. I I, I think these are all uh, amazing ideas, and the possibilities are endless. You know, wherever you want to take this. Well, that's good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> Could drive you crazy. <laughs> well, or it can paralyze you because you know the possibilities are endless. So where do you start? Right. But. Just start. That's the key is starting. Just start, you know, get in there. And- yeah. I think we've all found ourselves in a, in a situation where we've had a lot of free time and we've avoided the instrument. Yeah. Um, and that's happened to me too, where I'll have a couple of days, free days, and I'll have all these big plans to practice. And the first day I won't practice and the second day I won't practice. And the last day, finally at nine o'clock at night, I'll sit at the drums and I'll play about 15 minutes and my wife will say, Hey, what are you doing? And, uh, (laughs) and I will enjoy it so much. I'll be so pissed that I wasted those other days. Yeah. Yep. I, I used to think that I needed two or three hours to make progress. I needed a block of two or three hours to make progress. And, and I've discovered that that's not true at all. If I have 10 minutes, if I sit at the instrument, something good will happen and I'll feel better the next time I sit at the instrument. That's 10 more minutes than, than if you didn't practice. Yeah. And I I remain kind of hungry to practice when the sessions are in smaller chunks. Right. I mean, sometimes I'll do long, two or three hours, but not like I did years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to practice six hours a day in college. And to me now, it just seems like I, I feel like I, I I practice more efficiently now. So I think that maybe all six of those hours were not uh, productive hours of practicing. I was in the practice room for six hours, but but I feel like I could get the, the same amount done in a quarter of the time. Well, and you know more what you're going for now. Sure. What the requirements are. Right. I, after my freshman year in college, I got a, a gig playing at an amusement park called Astro World, which was in Houston, Texas. 
and they had a, uh, kind of a Broadway review show band that did this 45 minute shows like every hour, 18,000 times a day. <laughs> and, um, I was hired, uh, for the gig and I got fired after the first day. Really? Yeah. Because I was, I wasn't prepared. I didn't, I would, I wasn't uh, so comfortable following a conductor mm-hmm. and I hadn't had much experience playing shows and that really disappointed and angered me that I wasn't, uh, that I didn't have the skills required to keep that gig. Right. And that summer I practiced 10, 12 hours a day um, with a kind of uh, incredible hunger and focus. And when I returned to school in September, I sounded like a different person than when I left in, in May. And people asked me, man, what have you been doing? And I mean, I was practicing, I was focused. Right. And, and that made me realize that you can make a lot of progress in a short amount of time. If, if you're focused. Mm-hmm. And every summer after, after school was finished, my objective was to sound like a different guy when I returned in September. And uh, it wasn't that hard to do. I mean, it was definitely possible. Hmm. So having the desire and the curiosity and the focus, um, I think it's much more important than whatever talent might be. Right. If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. It's one thing to talk about how great dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices. So that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out dreamsymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about Dream Symbols, be sure to check them out at dreamsymbols.com. I think there's a, a Will Smith said that talent comes naturally, but skill comes from hours and hours and hours of beating on your craft. And that's always stuck with me that, you know, if you want to get better, practice. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's mm-hmm. born with you know, these amazing chops and, and musicality. It's, it's a, it's a skill that you can learn if you're, if you're willing to focus and put the time in to do it. Yeah. And I've actually, I've had some students that were, um, let's call them child prodigies. And, uh, you know, they were exceptional as kids and because they were exceptional, they got a, a lot of praise 
for being exceptional and then they're in high school and they can't think about what they, they don't know what they want to do when they go to college, but they've always been praised for playing music. So they get a music degree. And then one day at age 22 or 24 or 35, they wake up and, and have a question like, wow, do I want the fact that I was better than all the other eight-year-olds at playing the snare drum to, to dictate the course of my life? Right. And so sometimes, you know, being gifted, um, but not really being disciplined can can take you down a path that you don't really want to go. Sure. And they, you know, there's been studies with, you know, people that are, that have been praised at a young age, don't learn what it's like to lose or don't, you know, don't understand what disappointment is and don't understand that they have to work for things. And then they get older and they think everything should be handed to them and it's not, and it becomes almost detrimental to their character, which is, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Sure, it's absolutely unfortunate. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is no fault to their own. It's just if you're, if you if you grew up in that in that environment and, and have always got that that positive reinforcement, well, you're going to continue to live your life that way until, like you said, you wake up one day and maybe you've made some decisions that you shouldn't have or made some decisions that maybe you wouldn't necessarily have if if you weren't, uh, you know, if you didn't grow up with those circumstances. Yeah, if it's the only thing you ever get praised for, it's hard not to to follow it. Sure. <laughs> yep. Yep. I agree. Yeah. So I wanted to touch on uh, the three other the three other uh, let's say let's call them categories. So the other one was the next one is groove. So how do you how do you suggest that people develop their groove? Well, I mentioned a little bit like working on concentration and coordination and concentration. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing along with records that make you feel good. Um, as a jazz drummer, I I emulated the cymbal beat of of the players that uh, that I thought sounded the best to me at different tempos. Mm-hmm. And so, for slower tempos, I kind of have a a, a template, a sound in my mind based on. The, reco- the recordings I heard of other people or seeing other people play. And so um, I tried to to capture that feeling in my playing, mm-hmm. in the spacing and the balance of the way I play the cymbal. And then obviously the balance of the way the rest of the kit flows underneath that. Right. Um. I didn't practice much with a metronome when I was young because there weren't metronomes loud enough for me to hear <laughs> when I was playing the drums. Right. I did have one of these uh, wind-up, I think Tactel was the company that made it. It was like a flesh-colored uh, pendulum metronome. Yep, I know exactly and, the one you're talking about. And uh, my father had a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and at one point I did record that metronome at various tempos so that I could listen to it through headphones and play along with it. Hmm. But mainly I played with recordings that felt good to me and I would use the metronome when I practiced snare drum technique on a pad. I got you. Um, You know, nowadays there's all kinds of tools available to work on 
um, timing precision mm-hmm. uh, and play along tracks. And the only play along tracks I had was this record that Jim Chapin made called, uh, was a music minus one record called for drummers only. Hmm. And I, I played along with that record a lot too. Cool. In addition to that Gene Krupa record when right. I was a kid. Right. I've actually, I just started using a, uh, a drop metronome, which is really handy. So it just, What's that? so it's a metronome where you can set it to a certain BPM and then you can have it drop out. Say if you're playing, you know, quarter note equals 90, you can have it drop out a certain percentage of the clicks. And mm-hmm. so you can either, you can have it from 10% to 90% and then you can also have it gradually increase. So it can start at dropping out 10% of the, of the clicks. And by the time you end, it's dropping out 90% of the click. And it does that in a in a programmed way, or is it random? It's random. Wow. Yeah. So who it's makes a, that? It is. You know what? I'm going to look on my phone because I'm sure the listeners want to want to know as well. It's uh, an app. Yep, it is an app. It's called uh, it's called Time Trainer. Huh. Yep. So you can. It's cool because I use it. Um, I use another thing called the speed upper. So I'll set, I'll start a groove and start it at like 40 beats a minute, set it for 20 minutes and say, Mm -hmm. okay, I want to start at 40. I want to end at 90 and I want to play this for 20 minutes. So it'll gradually increase the speed up until, you know, for, for 20 minutes up until you reach the 90 BPM mark. Hmm. So it's a pretty interesting app. It was like $3, but well worth every, every penny. Those are two different apps. No, it's the same one. Oh, wow. Yep. And so you can take out, um, you can have bar breaks in there where it cuts out a whole bar, or you can have it just ran, and then, but the random beat drop is the one, the part that I, I really like. So you can have it, you know, gradual or just have it start at 90%, dropping out 90% of the beat hmm. or 90% of the click. So it's a real, uh, it's a real eye opener when you're, when you're playing something at 40 beats a minute and 80% of the clicks are missing. <laughs> you know yeah yeah oh that's good so yeah it's it's I'll, definitely worth I'll check checking it out, out. Thank I'll, you. I'll link to it sure i'll link to it in the in the show notes page as well for all the listeners uh so the next two are my my favorite topics creativity and and musicianship so how do you suggest let's start with the creativity of working on creativity behind the kit and phrasing and and all of that um well Let's talk about uh, in a jazz context. Okay. Um, musicians, uh, when we're playing together, we're sending each other signals all the time. Like, are we together? Am I too loud? Is this speeding up? Um, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But we also can send uh, motivic signals to each other. And I'm sure you've had the experience where you're playing with somebody and um, let's say a guitar player plays a quote from a Hendrix tune that you know. Right. But you're, you're playing another tune, but he plays something that Hendrix played. Mm-hmm. When that happens, that sends information. That if you recognize the Hendrix quote, it sends information that this guy likes Hendrix that this guy, that you and he have listened to the same records, that maybe you can change your playing a little bit to reflect the fact that you listened to that Hendrix record too. 
Mm-hmm. So this communication is happening, and it's happening based on a knowledge of the language that you're dealing with. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. So if if I'm talking about jazz and and I'm playing with somebody and they play a quote from Sonny Rollins, and I know that it's a record that Philly Joe Jones played on, I might play something related to what Philly Joe played on that song. Right. So the first requirement is that you have to have listened to a lot of records. You have to know what the dialect or the language of that genre of music is. Mm-hmm. And then once you have those that language, then you start to distort it. Right. By... Um, I think transcribing is a great tool. So I, you know, write down what you hear your favorite players play Mm -hmm. and learn how to play that. And, you know, if you have, if you have reasonable skills, I can play a fake version of David Garibaldi with the skills that I have. Right. But if I want to grow, I need to learn exactly what he played because it's a little different than what's comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. So accessing new material by getting exactly the stuff that your idols play and then changing the direction that you play it in or take a triplet phrase and play it at the 16th note rate or drop the last two notes out or add an extra bass drum. Basically, you're slicing and dicing this uh, this language, um, it's it's really not about inventing a new language. It's about learning the language and finding your own point of view with it. Sure. So if I transcribe some Philly Joe Jones, and I have that page on my music stand, and next to that I have some Jeff Watts that I transcribed, mm-hmm. because I have the material written down. I can force my eye to jump from one page to the other and link things together that wouldn't naturally uh, occur to me. Hmm. Like if I just learn by ear, it's hard to make these links. Sure. But if I, ha- if I have stuff written down, then, I mean, I can even have the page, I can fold the paper so that the measures are right next to each other and then try and, try and get a flow from one phrase to another. Um, and maybe I'm going to like what that is. Right. And that, that will help me, uh, that will take me on an exploration of that kind of thing. And so this is, this is, uh, the way I work on creativity. I, I think, I think that, that's a cool way to do it too. I think a small percentage of what I play is, uh, maybe of my own invention. Right. But a lot of what I play is from modifying phrases that I've heard other people play and that I liked. Mm-hmm. And then trying to turn them upside down or make it a seven-note phrase instead of an eight-note phrase. So it right. flips in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, isn't, every, isn't music that in a nutshell, it's something that someone else did and then someone takes it and, and you know, expands it or changes it or 
or you know everybody sounds like the the drummers that came before them and every you know all musicians sound like the musicians that came before them some to pay homage and and some to help help develop their own style and sound yes yeah uh, but i think being active in the process um, helps you progress faster mhm don't don't think that everything occurs by osmosis or right. by exactly some kind of ma- magical gift. Um, you've got to you've got to be engaged in the process and and pushing yourself, mm-hmm. um, and and acknowledge the growth that you're having. Right. That's that's one thing that's always helped me with practicing is is actually physically watching the growth. You know, videotaping it or or listening to it at least. Uh, and then starting to get addicted to the progress and not necessarily the action of practicing. So yeah, well, it is the pro- that's that's the uh, that's the dessert when you see some progress, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this has been going on forever. Sure. Um, I, I was talking to Roy Haynes once, and I. You know, he's often, along with Max Roach, called the the father of modern jazz drumming. Mm-hmm. And I asked him how he felt about that, and he said, "Oh man, I'm just trying to sound like Joe Jones." <laughs> and then you read an early interview with uh, with Vinnie Caliuta, and he says, "Yeah, I just took Tony Williams and and uh, Steve Gadd and put them in a blender." Right. And so this is the, this is the process. And the Gospel Chops guys are taking Dennis Chambers and and Chris Dave and and blending that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we have the uh, the last piece of it, which is musicianship. Well, this is maybe the most important one. Mm-hmm. Because there have been a number of drummers throughout history without great chops that worked all the time because they were good musicians. Mm-hmm. So musicianship means understanding what a song requires, understanding what the other musicians are trying to achieve, understanding the structure of a song, and then using the resources that you've gained by practicing technique and creativity and, and groove. And using them for the best outcome for the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think our objective is to, to unify and inspire the people we play with. And so you need to under, you need to be able to hear harmony. You don't need to know the names of the chords, but you ne- need to be able to hear resolution points. Right. And when the harmony is suggesting motion or tranquility or, tension um, and play in a way that, that supports that. I agree. But the main thing is to know where you are in the form of a song. Mm-hmm. That's a, and learning forms is a complicated thing when you first started, because I remembered learning forms and it sort of, first I, I didn't really understand what was going on. I didn't understand that that's how tunes were, <laughs> which sounds, mm-hmm. which sounds funny. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And, but it's such an eye-opening experience where 
you know, I said, oh, well, that's how everyone knows where they are and what they're playing. And and then I just totally heard songs in a different in a different light after that. Well, it makes it much easier when you hear that there's a cycle that's repeating. Right. Especially in jazz music. Mm-hmm. You, it's, it's mandatory that you can hear this harmonic cycle that's repeating because it, it, uh, it guides what everyone else plays and it informs you about when a drummer is likely to play some kind of fill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a fill in measure eight going to measure one feels a certain way where the exact same fill played in measure one going into measure two feels completely different. Right. So you need to know what impact the placement of your fills has on the flow for everyone else. Yep. So how do you, how do you suggest that people, uh, or let's, let's sort of say an easy song to, to dive into to to start to fill out or to start to find, figure out the form of the tune uh, so that people can s- sort of understand what we're talking about. If, if there's listeners out there that don't. Well, there's two main structures in, in jazz. There's many modifications, but there's two main structures. And one is the 12 measure blues. Mm-hmm. And the other is the 32-measure song. And so we've heard many songs that uh, conform to these structures, and then it's a matter of identifying the ones that, that somebody has heard but didn't know, didn't realize that they were a blues or that they were 32 bars. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in, a, in an era of cartoons on television. And um, the theme song from from Batman is a blues, right? So it's, it's a twelve measure blues, and so if you can feel that cycle and the way it resolves at the end and returns back to the beginning on that song, then when somebody else says, "Well, we're going to play Straight No Chaser," which is also a blues, you have a reference point, right? And so when we say Batman is a 12-measure structure, um, if I sing it, I'm not a good singer, but it's like one, two, three, four, Batman, three, four, two, two, three, four, Batman, three, four, four, two, three, four, Batman, three, four, six, two, three, four, Batman, three, four, eight, two, three, Batman, doo-ba-doo, Batman, boo-ba-doo, Batman, boo-ba-doo-da, 12, 3, 4, 1. So that harmonic cycle keeps repeating. It's Same as, as if the Freddie theme, Freeloader. The theme is, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and a thousand other songs. Right. Including, um, uh, there's a song that I used to play as a kid called Wooly Bully which actually was a 13-bar blues because of the melody. But you had to hear the cycle. Um, otherwise, if you think it's 12 bars, then you're always playing the fill in the wrong bar. <laughs> <laughs> and there goes the musicianship right out the window. <laughs> yeah, because when you play it there, 
it has a certain gravitational pull. Right. And the other musicians are going to say, oh, geez, am I lost or is he lost? And right. suddenly the whole, the integrity of the whole thing is going to be compromised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And for a 32 measure song, there's songs like uh, A Train or mm-hmm. the theme song from the Flintstones. Um, the Flintstones usually has a little tag on the end of it, but but you want to get comfortable with, with that kind of structure. Right. Which w- we would call AABA. And what that means is that there's a melody that's eight measures long. That's the A. It's repeated. That's the second A. Then the B is a, usually a new melody in a new key center. And then the last A repeats again. And so that whole cycle um, is the basis for the song. Yep. Yeah, and I think A-Train may be one that's a little easier to hear. Yeah, uh, so that would be one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, two, two three, four, five, eight, two, three, four, again, do, 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 three, boom, five, now the bridge, boo, boo, dee, da, 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 dee, da, boo, boo, dee, da, boo, boo, dee, da, last A, do, 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 three, and then back to the that end. makes sense yep yeah and then excuse my singing oh that's you should hear me <laughs> sing i wasn't even going to attempt it so uh and you know if you look at you can go online and check out anybody playing it um one of one of my favorites though is steve gad playing it because he's you know he solos through the whole form and that's another thing that that i really want to want people to understand is that, you know, the solo that he does, he's playing through the whole, the whole form of the song, whether he'll do it, you know, once through the form, twice through the form, three times through the form, whatever the case may be. And for me, once I realized form melody and putting those two together and I would have to do a drum solo, it was more, it, it it sort of, it was like a no brainer. I didn't really have to think about it because I would just play the melody rather than trying to come up with all of these licks that lasted for, I don't know how long I should play anything. If mm-hmm. that, does that make sense? Yeah. I, um, I'm certain that when Steve is playing that drum solo, he's singing the melody to a train and basically he's, uh, grafting his drum phrases onto that melody. Mm-hmm. But the melody is much more important to him than the licks he's playing. Absolutely. They're basically just uh, linking the melodic ideas that he's hearing, that he's hearing in his head. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you get to the point where that's very easy to do, where you hear the melody kind of going softly through your mind with no effort, then you're able to play some music. Right. If if you're um, consumed by keeping by singing the melody to yourself, then you can't play any music. Right. So how do you suggest people practice that though? Just grab tunes and start playing over them and and singing the melody. 
Yes. Yeah, because it's hard. It's it is it's hard. Or even taking a melody and you know just taking the first section of any melody uh, and try to play that rhythmically on the drums and then expand on that and expand on that and expand on that. That's even that is hard to do. Yeah, that that gets to what Louis Armstrong said. Somebody was interviewing him, and they they said, "Oh, this jazz, it's it's about improvisation. Uh, what does that mean?" And Louis Armstrong, in his inimitable way, said, "Well, first the man the man learns to play the song, then the man learns to play off of the song, then the man learns to play off of the playoff." Hmm. So first you learn to play A train. Yep. As it is. Then you learn to play off of A train. Then you hear that personalized version in your head and you play off of that. Right. And that's when it gets really interesting when you're taking the melody and subdividing the stuff that you're hearing in, in the melody into your own things and you know. Yeah, and that and some of that you do in the practice room. Mm-hmm. When you when you have a new phrase that you're working on, um, can you feel this this thirteen uh, note phrase as it unfolds across four measures of A train? Right, um, and that takes some some concentration. Yeah, yeah, it'll definitely uh, it'll it definitely separates the men from the boys when you get in there and start doing that. And sometimes, I mean, you know, I've walked out of the practice room with my tail between my legs sometimes, just frustrated and you know, and and it's just it's hard. It, I'll just leave it at that. It's hard. If if those out there listening haven't tried it, uh, I definitely suggest that you you take some of this and go into the practice room with it and try it because it'll it'll help you grow exponentially as a player and uh you know as a musician as well. Yeah, maybe even before that, take a recording of uh find a recording of A Train and listen to it and count the measures and see if you can feel where the see if you can arrive at the top of the form each time they do. Mm-hmm. And see if you can feel the bridge each time it arrives without playing. Just listen to it and count and and clap on beat one of of bar one and mm-hmm. bar nine and bar seventeen and bar twenty five and just make sure that you know exactly where you are and and when you can do that, suddenly you'll understand the reasons the people played what they did leading up to each of those landmarks mm-hmm. and then try and play, play uh, time and sing the melody to yourself and then try and solo. So make it kind of a progression. Sure. Yeah. You don't just want to jump into it. No. And you may need to listen to it for a week or two counting along sure. and then playing along for a week or two before you, you really feel secure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. All all good stuff, John. I think that uh I think that the listeners are going to have a lot to go into the practice room, uh especially all the stuff that we talked about, the insights about technique and groove and and creativity and and musicianship. I know that I know I got a lot out of it. I know the that the listeners did as well. Um and so if people want to learn more about you and they want to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Uh well, I have a website, John uh, sorry, johnreilly.org. And um, 
there's a discussion page there where you can send me a note or my email address is in there. Somewhat camouflaged, but easy to find, I hope. Um, yeah, that's the best way to reach me. And if, if anybody in New York, I, I play at the Village Vanguard every Monday night if if I'm in town. Oh, you do? And I do. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll have to come see. You. Oh, I've been doing it. Uh, well, it's the old Thad Jones Mel Lewis band, and Mel Lewis passed away, I think, in '91. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it. Well. Not since 91, but since 92 or 93, ever since then. Hmm. And it's really been a great experience. I'm definitely going to come come see you then. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and anyone out there, if you're in the in the New York area, check them out at the Village Vanguard on Monday nights. And so do you, do you teach privately as well, right? I teach, um, yeah, I teach, well, I teach at the Manhattan School of Music and at SUNY Purchase. And I have uh, intermittent private students. I don't do any regular private teaching outside of the school. Okay. Uh, I have been doing some Skype lessons, and that's I've been really surprised at how effective that is. Mm-hmm. You know, you said something earlier that I wanted to uh, to follow up on, that sometimes you leave the practice room with, with your tail between your legs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not uncommon. Right. But And I've had that same experience, or I've been practicing something, and it's been frustrating me, and I'll, I'll walk out of the practice room and make a phone call or drink some orange juice or something, and then go back to the drums, and somehow that thing that was hanging me up has, has formed better. Right. And I think what, what's happening is that uh, we assemble the things that are challenging us uh, in our subconscious. And uh, so don't be so frustrated because the next time you return to it, it will probably be in a better shape than, than you left it. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not, you know, three weeks later. Right. Right. Because <laughs> um, that happens to me a lot where something is frustrating me and, and I'll take a little break and I'll go back and, and suddenly it's there. Right. Um, and that's, that gives me hope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually, I was working out of, uh, the Charlie Wilcoxon books book this morning and there's like a two bar phrase that just every time I play it, I get hung up. So I went through it today and was like, all right, I'm going to drop it down to 40 beats or 50 beats a minute. I think it was. And I'm going to play through it after about two minutes of playing through it. Everything just sort of started to blur and I couldn't play any of it at all. Mm. Like I'd never played it before. So I did the same thing. I got up, I walked around for a few minutes. I came back down, hit, you know, hit the pad and it came out perfectly. So it's funny that you had mentioned that because I, I literally did that this morning. So uh, a great piece of Which advice. Solo? It's uh, the paradiddle Johnny. Uh huh. So there's a, there's a two bar phrase uh, that it, it alternates between the paradiddles and the triplets, but then the accents change as well. Yep. And yeah. I don't know why every time I run through it, I was, I was just getting hung up at that point. And I, it, I can play, I was like, I know I can play this, but I can't for some reason. Uh, so I was like, I'll just loop it. And I kept running through it and running through it. And, and then it, it blurred and then it got, so it got worse. And then I just walked away and I said, all right, let me come back and let me play this thing and just sat down and, and it came out nicely. So 
No, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's tomorrow it might be a little rough when you try it, but much quicker you'll have it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a another piece that that I think that everyone needs to recognize is that if there's something that you're constantly flubbing, like you're playing through a, a piece and you're flying right through that, you should take that and magnify it and really dig inside of it to make sure that you're playing it cleanly and playing it correctly rather than just saying, oh, I know I always screw up that section, but I'll just keep going anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's really common where you always start at the beginning of the piece. So the first line is fantastic and each line past that gets worse and worse. Right. I always feel like the beginning and the end are really good for some for one reason or another. The middle gets a little murky sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, the <laughs> end is usually similar to the beginning. Right. It's like a recapitulation. Right. <laughs> so, well, John, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking all this time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it, and I know the listeners do as well. They've been asking me to get you on the show for a while. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while, so it's a pleasure to, to finally have had you. And for anyone out there listening, be sure to check out his website, johnreilly.org. Excuse me. Check out all of his books, uh, his DVDs, and if you're in the New York area, come out and see him at the Village Vanguard. I strongly suggest it. Thanks, Nick. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll keep in touch and I'll see you. I'll see you in the city uh, at Village Vanguard. Definitely. Great. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Bye bye to everybody. There you have it. The one, the only John Riley. Check him out at drummersresource.com forward slash session five, eight, seven. And also, if you have some ideas about the 600th episode, shoot me an email and let me know what you're working on. Let me know if this episode helped as well. And like I said, I think we all have a lot of time on our hands now because there's no gigs. We're not touring. Uh, there's not a lot of a lot of uh, public things happening, right? So let me know what you're working on. Let me know what you're struggling with. I'd love to hear it. Shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com. Other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.